0: Hello, and welcome to this week's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher, and I'm joined this week by James Saunders, who's the boss at Quintain. James, fantastic to see you. Thank you for getting on the Tube from Wembley. Well, you didn't come by Tube this one. You came by Scooter, didn't you? And somehow managed to brave the London traffic and get here without killing too many
1: cyclists. I did, indeed. Anyway, thank you for inviting me. Um, Yeah, I'm a big fan of three-wheel scooters. wheels at the front not a robin reliant gets across london really really quickly unfortunately broke down today which is why i jumped on the tube. but i managed to get here well it's great to see you in the flesh let's get right into it i mean it's obviously been a
0: busy few years for you at wembley lots going on one of the biggest development sites anywhere in london i'd like to start by just dashing back into some of your career before you landed at quintain back in 2008 And immediately before that, you'd been working for Cloud Networks and before that as brand director for Coke. And in your student years, you took the bar and then worked at Coke. A lot of people would have probably done it the other way around, particularly in the city. But you've had an interesting career over the last 15 years that's brought together that work in branding, that work in infrastructure and utilities. And obviously, your legal training has probably been quite helpful as well, right?
1: Yeah, I studied law and then chose to build a career in consumer marketing, initially in advertising, and then at Coca-Cola, where I learned the power of branding and actually, ironically, got very involved with the Wembley site, because Coke was the sponsor of the stadium, the arena, and the England football team, and Euro 96. So I kind of knew the area a lot, but you know, that wasn't the reason I went to Quintet. I then went to work with Vodafone, and then I went to be a CMO of the Cloud Networks, which was building Wi-Fi networks across the City of London, Canary Wharf, quite a pioneering company. And that's when I got a call from a headhunter saying, there's this interesting property company that's invested in this really large estate in Northwest London, and they want to work out how to create commercial income streams. And one of the things they want to look at is, should they own utilities, in particular fiber optic networks? And by the way, they've got a relationship with the FA, and we know that you know something about the FA from your previous work. And they need to unlock the site, because they bought the site from the FA, and they've got endless commercial agreements. So we know you've got some legal training. Can you help? And that was really the beginning of my journey with Quintech. The obvious question is why some of those things weren't considered before they bought it. But I guess that's real estate, right? <laughs> well, I think they were. And, you know, Nick Shatter, who was deputy CEO that bought the site at Wembley, he's a lawyer. He understood the, the issues completely. I, I like Nick. but It's incredibly intense individually. Nick is fantastic to work with, hugely into the detail. I inherited from him some unbelievably complex some crafted documents that tried to articulate the relationship between us and the FA. And then I actually spent the next 10 years sort of reworking them because we needed to unlock the site. I needed a bit more freedom. Just as a simple example, we bought the car parks and then we've moved the car parks in order to create development sites around Wembley. You do that by agreement. So law is important, but so is mediation, so is facilitation, and so is a shared vision. I think that's something that I brought to Quintain, a company that was very much surveyors, property finance people, all the apparatus of a public property company. But what the Wembley project needed was a clear brand vision, a clear partnership vision, and then we could get to work on the development side. And I mean, the business was listed at the end of the 90s and then obviously
0: delisted and was restructured during that process. And how much of a cultural shift has it undergone since then? Because you sold off some of the big holdings in Greenwich, among others, and dubbed down on Wembley. Has there been a huge big cultural shift? Because there's still quite a lot of the same people there. I mean, obviously, Adrian White and Nick Shattuck are long gone. But unlike many other companies, you've had a very sticky culture and very sticky, loyal
1: workforce within the team, which I think speaks volumes about the culture that you've built. Well, thank you. Yes, it's true. I mean, we are a company of about 200 people. We have people, perhaps 20 or 30, that have been there over 10 years. Some have been there 15 years, and some of our Wembley employees have been there 25-year-plus. So, you know, great longevity, great continuity. But the company's gone through an unbelievable change. And I often describe Quintain as a book of many chapters. And when I joined, we were in the chapter of PLC. We had the development rights both at Wembley and also at Greenwich Peninsula. We owned a little student business called IQ. We had a healthcare division and had developed a science park, you know, Bristol and Bath Science Park. We were very diversified, not a huge amount of income, a lot of capital investment, and a lot of bank borrowing. You know, we went through quite a lot of management change, a new chief executive, new chairman. A big deleveraging program that resulted in us in selling off, first of all, our interest in Greenwich, then in IQ, to allow us to refocus on the Wembley site. And you're right, we doubled down on the Wembley site, paid down a significant amount of our debts, and we'd just taken our first steps into the build-to-rent market, because Wembley was really going to be about building for sale product. And in 2016, we launched our first very nascent BTR product in the marketplace, and that also pretty much coincided with Lone Star... U.S. private equity firm taking the company private, and that's led to another chapter, which has really been about Quintain as a private company, well capitalized by Lone Star, aggressively building BTR with a hundred percent BTR focus. So, you know, we haven't built up to be able to do that as a listed company. We couldn't. We didn't have the capital structure to do it. You know, we needed to have the balance sheet to hold the assets. We needed to obviously gear up again to be able to fund it with Lone Star behind us over the six or seven-year ten year, You know, we've built 3,500 BTR apartments and built them, held the stock, and operated them. And along the way, we had to grow an operating company. Wembley always had an estate management company, but we have built from scratch a BTR operating platform, Quintain Living. And of the 200 people they represent, over half of that now, people who are operating the various different buildings at the Wembley site Something that we're not afraid of creating new things. And IQ was another example of that. You know, we built that company from scratch in partnership with Wellcome Trust. So we had some pedigree of starting platforms. And I bet, with hindsight, you wish you'd kept that. Well, great business. And actually, great read-across to BTR. And we see a lot of student operators moving into that space. Yeah, and IQ remains pretty much the baseline alongside Greystar for how that sector should
0: be run, right? Yep. Very good company. Is it notable, just thinking about the public-private structure and the pain that we're seeing right now in the listed part of the market, particularly in the UK, it's notable, isn't it, that without exception there's no one in this market other than Granger and Unite that's done anything of this scale. And even with both of those companies, they came from a very different bases. Obviously, Granger had the regulated tenancies that were always the backbone of that business that Rupert Dickinson, you know, God rest his soul, when I came into the BPF, I met Rupert, and Granger was going on a similar transition. Well, a different transition from you, but a transition nonetheless. And obviously Unite began not as a listed company, but as something institutionally backed. And it wasn't until, again, around 2006 when GIC came in and they then flipped an element of Unite into, well, they IPO'd it, didn't they? But the point is that both of those businesses came from essentially family office style bases. And it just strikes me that the whole construct of the REIT regime, which was to create resi businesses like yours, has just been an utter failure. Well, I don't think we're at the end point yet. You know, I've described the BTO market. 17 years on from when the rebate regime was introduced, so it's a fair old time.
1: But I think there's still a huge potential in the structure that it offers. And but my um, question,
0: sorry to interrupt you, James, my question is simply this. Does development just have to be done in a private structure?
1: Well, I think it's a lot easier, but I think you cannot underestimate, you know, the continual need for capital, and you need to find your capital from somewhere. My personal experience with Quinto as a PLC is that We were not successful in raising significant amounts of capital in the public markets, apart from the initial flotation. And the reporting regime to the city was not conducive to the kind of long-term, capital-intensive development projects that we had. Or maybe the culture of AGM. Well. what I have observed is we were craving pace. And I think a lot of the big regen schemes acknowledge that, you know, you need to get to a critical mass. You need to actually not take 20 years to do your project. Over the lifetime of the project, it might end-to-end might take you 20 years, but you need some really big growth spurts in order to change the nature of the place. That can only be done with private capital and, you know, significant amounts of resources deployed rapidly. And that was not something that Quintain could have contemplated as a public company.
0: Well, it's the same with many other Public firms now. I mean, looking at sites like Canada Water, which has been trundling along for a fair old while now. And then you contrast that with people like Arjun or Bruntwood, obviously. Chris Oglesby up in the Northwest, he's done some amazing projects across the Midlands and Manchester. I mean, sticking with this question about finance, because I guess there are different issues now in terms of the current capital markets. Rates aren't going down anytime soon. Inflation's still being quite sticky as we roll towards Christmas now. How have you been continuing to fund development? And you're still going. You've still got a fair
1: old amount of juice in the machine, haven't you, in terms of space that you can develop on? So we've built three and a half, or nearly 4,000 units. We have consent for another 3,000 in two more phases, two more districts. We have used a sort of revolving development facility for a number of years to provide some of the core financing around that. And then every time we complete a building, then we'll do a refinancing of that individual building, usually at a more attractive investment asset rate as opposed to a development rate. And we've recently just rebooted and refinanced that big corporate facility that's been in the press reasonably recently. I think you need that at your core, but also we need to look at other opportunities that you have to create liquidity. And over the last couple of years, we've been looking at some of our assets that we've held on the estate and working out whether actually we need to own them long-term. In fact, we sold the arena last year which we spent fifteen years nurturing and turning it around, and yeah, making you really it sorted that out. It. The arena was a—I
0: well, am not going to swear—but it wasn't great some time ago. And I think you've really sorted that. in just in terms of the F and B, the sound quality as much, but just the experience there, the place shaping around it. And I think, obviously, you know, you were forced to when AEG turned up with the O two, and that's and, right. You know, we all sort of still chuckle about. Those crappy old dinosaurs and body parts that were the, uh, I don't even know what it was called. The dome. The dome, yeah. Like I, I've sort of shoved it in the back of my brain so I can't remember yeah. it. We were there last week for Muse and this week for Madonna, and it's just you come out afterwards and you think there used to be a bit of somebody's tummy up there, right? Hanging on this sort of skeletal thing. Mm. Like a kind of crap natural history museum. You go back
1: 20 years, that was one of our development sites, not the actual dome itself. That the was AG, but yeah. all the resi around there. And the master plan for that was done by Quintain in partnership with Lendlix. When the O2 opened, up until that point, Wembley Arena had been the biggest venue in London and the place that everybody wanted to play when you're playing at an indoor venue. Or else court, cool, yeah. Yeah. But it needed significant investment to modernize it, to make it competitive. And, you know, we did that work and brought in different operators and ended up partnering with AG actually, instead of competing with them. We partnered with them, which was something It's that- startling about monopoly in the music industry, isn't
0: it, in terms of the promoters and the ticket people, I'm surprised that no one's really looked at that. Well,
1: they did. The MMC looked at it and said, because the tickets are sold by promoters, not by the venues, actually, the promoter will always stay in control of that piece there. So it got through the MMC, And it was operated by AG and then ASM. Monopolies and Mergers Commission just for for anyone. And then we sold it last year because our view was actually, it's a great two listed building. It will always be a venue. And actually what it needed was the next owner to put some more money in to take it further on its journey. And ICG who own it now are on that journey. With the same operator, it's still doing 120 gigs a year. It brings a million people to the site. It's very additive to what we do at Wembley, but we don't need to own it. So it's an example of capital recycling. The other one that's obviously been in the press and is working its way through is the Outlet Centre. It's another business that is now 10 years old. We nurtured that from the ground up Everybody said to us, you can't do an outlet in London. It's too close to full price and Brent Cross and Westfield. And it's been an incredible, successful business for us. But ultimately, it will not be a business that Quintain you know, ultimately owns in the long term. But the estate will still benefit from having it on the estate.
0: It's an interesting trade-off, isn't it? Because I think this is one of the challenges that everyone, again, I'm not going to focus too much on the REITs. But again, it is a particular question that gets asked by analysts, which is, should you still be owning this asset? At what point do you get out and recycle the capital and create better value for investors? And people have said in some instances over the years, you're an absolute fruitcake if you hold an office after it's stabilized. I guess the dynamic of that is quite different, given that a lot of your value as a business depends on the broader place, which isn't the same if I'm Landsec or BL, I own a building here or there in somewhere in London, where you've got acres and acres of space around it And being able to maintain control about how Some of these assets are run and optimized, can make or break some of the stuff you're building around it, right? Because if suddenly that outlet center
1: just falls apart, then you're going to lose custom for a lot of your F&B, right? Yeah, you will. But we're not dependent on one single venue, one single asset. So we've got neighborhood retail as well. We've got independent restaurants. Yeah. It's more about chains. You know what? The vision's always been about true mixed use and diversification into different sectors. You're right that as a developer, you're always asking the question about, okay, what is the income profile going to look like on the way to stabilization and beyond stabilization? What's the capital reinvestment that's required in that? And you're making decisions all the way along as to how long you should be holding stuff for. We are passionate believers in the place and the value of the place. The place is almost the gel that holds all these different asset classes together and creates real value from a retail, because it attracts footfall into the area, from a residential perspective, because people need to like the neighborhood they're living in, otherwise they won't consider it. I mean, Wembley Park had no residential component before Quintain started building it. There was one janitor who lived above one of our old office buildings. That was the only resi bit. And then we started building for sale. And now we've got our big BTR estate. We have seen the second or third wave of living development. We've got their 5,000 student beds that different student operators have brought to site. There's more for sale product. There's some co-living product. All of that has been attracted by the place investment that we have made. In many ways, we've done the heavy lifting for all those different parties. And given your current shareholders and
0: backers, how do you make the case for doing that when a lot of the benefit goes elsewhere because this isn't like Grosvenor, Cadogan, the Crown Estate for example where they own a swathe of Regent Street or Chelsea or Mayfair and they can quite easily see the, the feed through from investing in public greenery or whatever it is to the rents they might charge watches to Switzerland or someone.
1: Well, I think we see it too, in the sense that our BTR rents are typically 15 to 20% above the local PRS equivalent, normal rental stock that's not in a BTR-type yeah, structure. Yeah. So we can justify it, we can but see it. But you get it, it you know, anyway, see... simply because they're newer nicer buildings, wouldn't you? You get it, but you need to sustain it over time. And you hope for a sensible amount of rent growth along the way as well. Mm. For us, it's always been absolutely implicit, that when you take an asset like what used to be around Wembley, which was you know industrial sheds and entertainment venues, but that hadn't had enough historic investment, you try and actually dramatically change the use of it, turn it into a residential neighborhood. With credibility, you're going to have to invest in the public realm. Mm. You're going to have to plant the trees that were never there before. You're going to have to build the parks that were never there before. And even do the arrivals experience. I mean, I think anybody's been recently and goes down Olympic Way, the Wembley fans call Wembley Way. It's called Olympic Way. And the beautiful new environment that we created the state of step all of that makes that yeah, first yeah it's got impression. a
0: lot better and i think i probably slagged it off on a podcast a while ago which found its way back to quintain so i'm happy to retract that <laughs> it. it does look a lot better but my question remains on that point. and i mm. think the point i was making on that podcast with russell pedley the architect from the sale and a couple of others was when you walk down olympic way and you come up to the box park that's now there and i think
1: that's a great addition and, and uh, i'm interested in how box parks moving on post Roger leaving. Yeah. So just a few headlines on that. I mean, we did a ten year joint venture with Roger and his company to create Box park Wembley, the third box park in London, the biggest, with a bigger leisure component as well as the sort of normal forty food vendors downstairs. And we sized it really to try and cope with an amazing match day experience. You know, that's an incredible place to you go fill before I over. absolutely. You? Roger has now got external capital in there got a management team led by Simon Champion who are running that business, and they're expanding to new venues, and I think that they've got a really exciting opportunity. I think the property industry recognise the value that they add as an interim use. Well, it's great, selling people £10 bowls of noodles in shipping containers. I mean, it's genius. They're also doing more and more work around you know, clubs and stadiums and stuff like that, yeah. because the owners of these big venues also appreciate that people want a really high-quality pre- and post-match experience. I think BoxBox has really created something unique But there. the question I
0: was going to ask was, what scope is there to animate more of Olympic weight? Because you go down there on a venue, and you know you can go and buy your £75 tour t-shirt for whichever band you're seeing you get your 10 pound noodles in box but but you've got a lot of space there could it not be better used
1: well you know i don't know if you come down on match day so we spend a lot of time doing non-match day animation we have a big culture and arts program and that for us is recognizing that Places in cities that have got a history have got culture, and it's not one type of culture. You know, Wembley's always been associated with sport and music. But actually, if you're asking people to live there or visit repeatedly, you have to keep serving them up new stuff. So we have interesting other actors on the site. The Royal Philharmonic is a partner of ours that's often doing amazing pop-ups and displays. We have Punch Drunk Enrichment who do cultural programs with us. We have our own cultural venue called The Yellow, which is a community-based cultural activity. We are frequently doing stuff in the public realm. And obviously, everybody has to take a step back because of COVID. But you know, we have a really nice animation program, a busking program. If you go down there every day, you'll see a lot of digital art. You'll see what our steps actually painted and animated. You'll see what used to be phone boxes full of art displays. So, you know, art is something that we really believe in. And actually, that's part of creating our everyday living environment. And let's come on to the living environment because that's obviously
0: been the centerpiece of what you've been seen in the market for over the last seven years or so. And Quintain Living has emerged. Is pretty much the preeminent operator of rental housing in this country, both volume and focus. And I think you proved the market wrong. Everybody said that you wouldn't be able to fill up three, 5,000 units in one place, that you'd be cannibalizing yourself. Let me ask you about that. How do you deal with cannibalization when, as you said, you're not the sole owner of all the resi? So how do you manage that, particularly when you've got other competitors like Ryan Prince's group uncle next door. And... Yeah,
1: they're next door, but they're a few miles down the road. You know, we don't really have direct BTR competition on site, but we're not afraid if we did. We've got different living classes. We've got for sale. We've obviously got a student. We've got co-living. I think the key for us is that, you know, we have to keep creating a lot of value for the resident who's living there. You know, they're paying their rent. They're getting a lot of amenity. They're getting a lot of inclusive elements as part of that. Beautiful roof terraces, balconies podium gardens what do they, gyms, they use cetera, and which, which
0: ones have you changed because
1: they were less used i don't think we've changed anything yet but we look at it continuously we'll look at the room utilization and if we designated something as a lounge and actually we think it'd be better as a work from home space then that stuff is beginning to change but what we tried to do in our buildings is one create a different character for each of the buildings in using really different interior designers to achieve that it's really, I think, one of the keys to your cannibalization point. I mean, people have often said to us, whenever you release a new building, don't people just jump to the new building? And the answer is no, they don't, actually. They fall in love with the building that they're in. And they might change apartment within the building, but they're not jumping from building to building. They're in different locations and they've got a different character. But there are a lot of common elements, you know, a lot of roof terraces, public realm, private gardens, gyms, etc., etc. You know, we look at those as almost like the basics of some of our brand, but... Even more important, than that is well-designed apartments. So we put a huge amount of attention into the kitchen, the bathroom, the layout, the floor plan, and all that kind of stuff, and making sure we're optimizing space and it's as good as it can be. There's a lot of learning that we've taken from the states and other markets in terms of you know what stuff wears really well, you know what type of flooring would you use, what's the right surface. Because yeah, I remember Ian Merrick from a Central Living; he was the ops director there when we launched
0: that business in 2012, and he was a absolutely brilliant pedant for all these sorts of things. He'd sit there talking about different types of floor tiles. and
1: That's exactly right. And we're lucky. And it was a deliberate strategy for us. You know, we brought various Americans into our business quite early on, either on the design side. And actually, the Quinta Living today is run by Danielle Bayless, who's from California. We persuaded her to leave California and come to Wembley to run our portfolio. Because we've got rain and water here, and they don't have much of that in California. Fortunately, she loves live events <laughs> and loves London. So she was very happy to come. But She brought with her 25 years of operating portfolios at scale. And that's one thing that the UK did not know how to do. Because, you know, at the end of the day, BTR or multifamily, as Americans call it is a business that needs to perform to certain metrics. People think it's easy, though, don't they? Lots of people
0: are still setting up operational platforms. and They are. And what and
1: advice would you give them? Well, I would say you, know, to you need to be able to operate at scale. I mean, to get efficiencies for the building, but also for the platform, you need to operate a certain number of units. It's very difficult to achieve you've on a built, single building uh, basis. Do you think that you've now got a moat in that market? Because other than really
0: what Greystar... I mean, obviously IQ and some of the other student operators, Unite, Urban Nest, probably to a lesser extent. There aren't many people that are operating high-quality assets at scale. And what opportunity, if you do believe you have a mo, what opportunity is there for Quintain
1: to be working for more third-party investors? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. I think what we've done uniquely is create an economy of scale around the Wembley site because of the concentration that we've got. All these different units being run by the same management team, by the same letting team, the same maintenance team. You know, there's a really important margin conversation in BTR that all the investors look at is about. Well, it's it's important because it's not very big. Well, it's a low yield asset. But people are really focused on what percentage of the overall rent that's payable do you actually keep at the end of the day, well, as opposed to paying away. that's the point, the
0: value, as we've, I mean, this is no different from student or any other asset yeah, class. Yeah, you your operating costs
1: correct. And so having a local economy scale is really important. Your question is about the platform and how you grow it. I mean, so my, us, quest, yeah, my question is, is there an opportunity for Quintain to work with third parties?
0: And how extractable is the scale of your platform when you take it to a different geography.
1: Well, I think it's very extractable. And it's definitely an opportunity that we are looking at more and more as offering out, first of all, our Quintain Living brand, but also our operating platform for the third parties as an alternative to them building their own, which would be subscale. You know, we've made probably a £3 million investment in our underlying software. You know, there isn't software that you can buy off the peg from the US that will work just the way you want it to run these assets. You know, we've built a platform to do that. We've built a brand, and we've also built a whole set of operating procedures and practices that we think are hugely exportable, and we could plug in to third-party sites And operate on other people's behalf. But I would say what we would look for in that is first of all a bit of scale. There's a certain small building that's too small for us that actually will never benefit from that. What we've done, I think, uniquely really well is blocks of two hundred units plus districts with the retail component underneath. You know, we'll do all of that. There is no asset class that actually Quintain wouldn't consider operating or finding an operating solution for. A lot of people might say they might operate your building for you, but we'll operate the entire district. And I think the ways to go down that route, first of all, is third party management. The second one is joint ventures. You know, we're really interested in working with other parties on a JV basis, because that is the best use, I think, of Quintain's development skill and operating skill. We are both developer and operator we design the buildings that we then operate under the Quintain living brand that development team has got incredible competences and worked across many different asset classes extremely good at the planning piece at the front end the design bit in the middle and the operating bit at the end we always work with third party contractors to actually build them and we've got a great panel of contractors as well. So there's a model of how the modern Quintain operates that I think is very exportable. And we are talking to different locations and different people about that. Our shareholder today, Lone Star, is very focused on us completing the job at Wembley. You know, there are two more districts to do, and you know, we absolutely acknowledge that. But for our growth and our future, we're obviously interested in other locations and other partnerships. And that's interesting because, I
0: mean, so many of the investors that I speak to right now, including some of the ones that I've worked with personally over the years, many see this current cycle now as being one focused on operationalization of real estate. And I've talked about this a lot before on these podcasts and some of the reports that we've worked on in recent memory. And that ability that you have to build platforms i think is probably not so well understood by the market james you know you mentioned iq which people have forgotten about i
1: think that's right i think people have forgotten that we were the genesis of iq quintain living today started off as a little business called tp and that was very much off toe in the water and then as we scaled it we evolved it into the platform that we have today we don't talk a lot about The underlying investment in the software the systems processes and frankly people but it's there you can imagine we're operating the people on the platform i think are critical to your value
0: and if i'm looking at in some of the work that i do helping funds raise money a lot of the time they're trying to raise money for real estate but that real estate is worth a lot less without a great platform sitting above it that doesn't necessarily mean you want to build it from scratch because that's potentially using your investors' money suboptimally, if you can pipe something in, build it up, staircase it up, or get it off the shelf. And I think that's something investors are starting to get a bit
1: wiser to now. Yeah, I think so too. And I also think the right way to partner with other people's projects is as early as possible. You know, I think it's really important that if you really want to influence the design and also what you're going to operate at the end, you know, you need to get into that conversation early, not step in three months before PC. Yeah, now of course. it takes you much earlier up the curve. So where are the opportunities going to sit in the
0: next cycle? So for people listening to this that might act for different investors or for anyone interested in the marketplace that's clearly looking at the cyclical downtime we've got at the minute, this is potentially going to be the best time to get a foothold in the UK
1: market within the next decade, right, if we're looking to 2024? Yeah. Listen, I think a lot of smart people buy in the dips. I think definitely there's some land opportunities now. Where? I would say in almost every regional city, and even in London, there are still really attractive opportunities to buy land that can be repurposed, to have a successful built to rent scheme. Not only do you need to buy well, but you've also got to build at the right build cost. I think that's really been a factor that slowed down lots of people's projects in the market in the last 18 months or so. They've been worried about construction costs. They've been worried about regulation and having put secondary means of escape and various other things in that slowed down projects. But if you can get your core construction costs correct, and you can match them well against your rents that you can anticipate and not overinflate your rents, there's still some really, really good opportunities. Because I think that what is absolutely clear, that the demand for the PTR product is incredibly solid. And it's serving not just the domestic market, by the way. It's serving a significant amount of new-to-London people coming from overseas, and also some of the more affluent students as well. So there's those characteristics. Mm. On that construction because that's critical, isn't it? And then that's ultimately
0: the biggest barrier we're seeing right now. And that's why, you know, again, looking across the market, the people that are speaking to me just say that forward fundings are dead ducks right now.
1: Well... I don't think they're dead ducks, but I think people are having to rework their appraisals pretty hard. And by the way, construction costs... Reworking are appraisals often means you shoving the rents up. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, costs are not going up in all categories of spend. You know, I'm not on the construction side, but I'm told that, you know, depending whether you're buying glass or steel or timber, things are changing. And mm. actually, there is inflation coming out. Prices are coming down. But I think the new dynamic is obviously the cost of finance that's coming into the marketplace. You know, people are having to rework their appraisals with much higher costs of leverage. And that's affecting investors' appetites and willingness to commit at this point in time, their willingness to price opportunities in the market. But it's cyclical. Mm. And I think, you know, without question, good quality product, good platforms, and good sites will always attract investment. The question is, at what point in time? In the meantime, we're spending a huge amount of time, if there's not easy horizontal or geographic growth. What there is is a lot of work that can be done on improving your own building efficiencies. We spent the last year actually internalizing a lot of work that we would have done with third-party suppliers and actually bringing that in-house just because we save the VAT, because we get some margin improvements. We're really trying to refine that operating model. I think that will stand us in really good stead when we can get more easy growth.
0: Well, I guess also shortening the feedback loops, having greater oversight of the data as well.
1: You know what? And that is kind of my link back to my marketing background. You know, knowing your customer and listening to your customer is everything. You know, we spend a huge amount of time, not just surveying, but face-to-face, sitting down with customers, trying to understand what they want, what's missing, what they want next what kind of shops they want. You know, the conversations are incredibly diverse and varied, but incredibly rewarding for us. And that helps us inform our design brief. I think we're on version six now of the Quintain Living design brief. It goes through an iteration all the time. It informs our retail strategy, it informs our placemaking strategy. And it's the best way of staying relevant to your audience and mm. that for me is a fundamental marketing principle that we'll always keep at the heart of Quintain. So let's dish out some free advice,
0: James Saunders. What advice would you give to Jamie Ripplack, who's obviously Delancia a driving Earl's Court, another part of london that's had a checkered history over the last 10 years known partly for the entertainment and exhibition venue and for uh, capco's unfortunate dalliance with the council and everybody else that they fell out with
1: if you were doing oh, i was cool, what would you be prioritizing i guess some of the things that we've been discussing well i actually was lucky enough to spend an afternoon on that site really recently because the development director ben giddens is ex-Quintain. What they've done, I think, very smartly. I think they've solved some of their planning issues and local authority issues now. Well, some will, of the issues were just
0: don't lie to people, really. Well, I won't
1: talk about the previous regime, but you know, I think you know the Else Court Development Company's put a lot of emphasis into sorting out those local authority relationships, working out the right way of dealing with the affordable housing component, and they built a really exciting master plan. And as Ben's ex Quintain, there's a lot of it is reminiscent of what Quintain would have done as well. You know really good placemaking, really good streetscapes and connectivity. The site today when you walk around is amazing because you'll actually see the top of the tube lines. You can see the tunnels poking out through the soil. You know, you can see how well-connected it is. And they've got these big infrastructure hurdles in the same way that we did navigating around stadium and event days. Of course, they've got an unbelievable residential potential because they're in a residential district. But I think their ambition is impressive in terms of adding an office component, a co-working component, and different tenures of residential. So I think they're quite well set. I was very impressed with what I saw. They've definitely turned the corner. I mean, the spade hasn't gone on the ground yet, but that's all to come in the next 12 months or so. Yeah,
0: and of course, they've got Olympia, it's John Hitchcock's, and great. you have Very been exciting. developing up the road. Really exciting scheme. And that's a great scheme. We need to get John back on the podcast, don't we? Yeah. And the other piece of advice that you need to shout, James Saunders, is on retail and branding, is to our friends down in Oxford Street, who could probably do some of your help at a minute what would you be doing down there?
1: Yeah, well, they've got all of the brand names. I worry about the environment that they're offering. And I know there've been loads of schemes over the years about pedestrianising. And I don't know whether, you know, pedestrianisation is the answer, because part of the animation of the area is some of the public transport that moves through it. I worry that the environment is actually sort of degrading in some ways. I'm not a big fan of despite the fact I ride a trike myself, the, you know, the way that you can go there on a Thursday night or whatever, and you can be absolutely surrounded and hemmed in by guys riding rickshaws. rickshaws. Yeah, that
0: became a thing, didn't it? it was sort of I like, think we have lost it, control Post-2010,
1: and it's become a real plague. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. I think they need to really think really carefully about the environment they want and so to create. There's
0: also e-scooters. We walk around Highbury Fields where we live, and you, know, you could be pushing a buggy through. There's some dude on an e-scooter whacking it through at 40 miles an hour, and you can only drive 20 miles an hour down an A road. It makes no sense.
1: And also, I mean, for me, Oxford Street, it's an extra large place. There's not a lot of small and boutique. And I think they've got to work out what are the different. It's not one street, perhaps. It's actually a series of and districts. They, I mean,
0: there used to be a lot more around Carnaby Street and the various branch streets from Carnaby.
1: And they have been... But they've done a great job with that. But that's sort of off the main but pitch. But even so, it's still brands it's not a lot of the stuff it used to be it's brands and experiences i walked past there the other day and there's a rolling stones new album pop-up you know people love experiences and that's something that i think we've really taken to heart we've got a bread ahead bakery there but it's a bakery a restaurant and a cooking school you need to offer these unique experiences to make a physical visit better than an online experience Everyone's always going to use online for comparison shopping and for convenience. But, you know, how are you going to draw people into city centers? You need to create experiences for people. I think every single shop has got to make a contribution towards that. And the streets have to be managed in a kind of coordinated way. I have to say, I still am a big fan of the Christmas decorations and the things they do of a joined up nature. I think that still is really powerful for the area. Mm -hmm. We'd hate to see less investment in that in times of more austerity obviously that's some of the first things to go but i think that stuff is really important and in terms of your personal situation you've got five kids which is a lot of kids a lot of christmas presents
0: um (laughs) how have you you sort of managed that side by side because you obviously have a very intense day-to-day lots of children of sorts in the business to deal with Uh,
1: i'm really really lucky at both levels i've got uh, an amazing wife who looks after the logistics of five children one of them's nearly 20 now, so they're not all so little. But at one point, we did have five under eight or nine. That was quite a challenging time. But it's challenging for everybody. There's nothing unique in it. I also think that I am incredibly lucky with my Quentin colleagues, many of whom I've worked with for a, a number of years. There's a really strong ethos in the company. There's an absolute determination. People really step up and take responsibility. It's not all about what one person does. And obviously, I've got to provide leadership for a group of people, but we're also setting a culture. And I think, you know, the culture of the company is one of the reasons that Quintana has been so successful and has longevity, because it's incredibly strong. And I can trust, and when I do need to step away, you know, for family reasons or whatever, I can trust my colleagues. They can keep executing, and they do an extremely good job.
0: Hmm. And what would your advice be to other CEOs that have perhaps struggled with that question about how culture should evolve in a post- covid post me to post everything environment that we're now in where many things that you or i might have taken forgiven in the 90s aren't how things run now and you've got these other threats from climate and ai and all this other stuff that people are scared about there's wars going on there's cost of living you know there's lots of different things which affect people and i think particularly for young people you know, they're a lot more sensitive they're perhaps they have a lot more world awareness but are perhaps more world weary when they come into the workplace and it
1: isn't something that previous generations had yeah and i think they have very different expectations and i think we saw it a lot when we started quintain living the average age of the employees in quintain living because it's more service orientated was probably mid to late 20s the average age of somebody working in quintain corporate or development was probably late 30s to mid 40s and perhaps older you know there's a real difference in culture and i think we Deliberately, have kind of tried to bring those two things together because we have so much to learn from the younger people in the organisation, and you know we need to put them in positions of responsibility because they will be part of our future. For me, you've got to stay open and you've got to keep listening because things are changing a lot. I mean, when I became chief executive just before the pandemic, there was no rule book for managing through the pandemic for anybody. I didn't do it alone. We did it as a team. We formed groups of people with different diverse backgrounds to talk and to find solutions. And again, we're not unique. Everybody evolved working from home policies and hybrid working policies. And you look at the market, but you also look at what's right for you. And I think, you know, culturally... It never stays still. You know, this book of many chapters has still got lots of chapters to write, and every chapter is a little bit different. While I think we've taken from the past, we still have some of that discipline from the PLC days in terms of reporting, and really important for shareholders and stuff like that. But we've got a much more evolved culture and a much younger mm. culture that we've created, I think, with a lot of help from some of the people who work in the Quintain Living side of mm. the business.
0: Final question, three best gigs you've seen at the Stadium or the Arena?
1: oasis in the arena just the final tour before they went no no this was kind of like late 90s kind of thing you know just combination of their music and the arena with its incredible acoustics and solid concrete roof absolutely fantastic i'd go back to my first ever concert at the arena david bowie oh wow what tour 1983 serious Moonlight tour so first ever concert i saw you know and ironically we end up owning that building so that was a great Crikey, a first gig And then I would say, probably in more recent times, Coldplay in the stadium, just combination of the light show and the music and the silly wristbands you know, but you know what it creates an incredible atmosphere you know when the sun is disappearing you're going into night and the wristbands come on and the anthemic music you know you're somewhere special and that was one of the things that drew me to Wembley in the first place all that stuff I still love that live event piece
0: excellent well it's lovely to have you on and look forward to reading the next couple of chapters of the book Thank and hopefully the Netflix series to follow it up James Saunders CEO Quintain, thanks a lot for coming on Propcast, and we'll see you again very soon. Thank you to everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for any of your guest suggestions. You can subscribe to Propcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search Propcast, and we'll see you again very, very soon. I've been Andrew Teacher. Thanks a lot.